The next hour will inform you on how cybersecurity is one of the most significant threats to our national security, as well as the battle that cybersecurity experts are undergoing every day on your behalf to protect you, your families, and your data. Welcome to Task Force 7 Radio with your host, the president and CEO of Task Force 7 Radio and Task Force 7 Technologies, George Reedus. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode number 63 of Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. I'm your host, George Reedus. I'm going to emphasize that all opinions expressed in this show are my own. And not that I'm a president of past employers. I've only disclosed any sensitive intelligence that I've been privileged to as a resort to my current employment, and I will never knowingly disclose any classified information related to any security clearances I personally hold or have held in the past with the United States government, and nothing I say during this show should be construed as legal or financial advice. So before we get started, I want to remind our listeners that you can go online to the Cybersecurity Hub and read a recap of tonight's show and get other up-to-date cybersecurity breaking news at their very cool website, www.cshub.com. The Cybersecurity Hub is an online news source for global cybersecurity professionals and business leaders who leverage technology and services to secure their networks. The media professionals at the Cybersecurity Hub are dedicated to providing the latest industry news, thought leadership, and analysis in the cybersecurity space. So again, to check out a recap of tonight's show and get other up-to-date cybersecurity breaking news, Go to the Cybersecurity Hub at cshub.com. That's the Cybersecurity Hub at cshub.com. So it was a really great show last week. We had the CISO of IFF on with us, and Tomas Maldonado just killed it. I mean, what a refreshing show it was. It was a great conversation with one of the most popular CISOs in the industry. He's very well known, he's very likable. Everybody knows Tomas in the industry. And, hey, look, I told, I told Tomas, I mean, my man's got a radio voice. He sounded really, really good. This show was, you know, a pleasure to listen to. Uh, and he's definitely one of the cool kids in the cybersecurity block. You know, he's like, uh, everybody knows who he is. He's, we covered a lot of great topics last week. But he's just got a really cool story to him, right? He's a really cool guy. He's got a great story. He's from the hard streets of the Bronx. And right from those streets to the chief in charge of information security after a career path of landing some very highly sought after positions working for Wall Street's powerhouses. So it's a truly inspirational story. It was a great show. And this is just one of those interviews that really epitomizes what Task Force 7 Radio is really all about, right? We hit all the topics people like to hear about. I got to talk to Tomas about the different kinds of CISOs in the business, where CISOs should land in the organizational construct of an organization. And, you know, the theme of the show, uh, you know, what are the security trends he's seeing in the industry and what kinds of issues CISOs are sharing with their boards? And I think that was a very interesting topic. And it was the theme of the show because we spent some time on it in the second segment. I think we kicked off the second segment with, uh, with that discussion. And Tomas has a special talent of taking technical issues and explaining them in plain language and non-technical language. So the non-technical folks can really understand what exactly he's talking about. And that's a special skill that I think all CISOs should have. And I guess, it, you know, I bring this to your attention because I think it's important. And I think, you know, listening to him speak, just the way he presents himself, his presentation, you know, the way he articulates his business is really important and is a lesson in and of itself. So we covered a variety of other different topics, including the latest breaches. We talked about 
uh, Marriott. I think we want to mention Cora and then the number of vendors in the market. That gets really confusing. And we also talked about the technological advance, advancements in the industry. And of course, I solicited Tomas's thoughts on what young folks should do to manage their career and what seasoned professionals should do to land that big CISO job they've been looking for. So if you, if you get a chance to listen to last week's episode, it'll definitely be worth your time. All you got to do is go back, find your play, playback medium, boot up Task Force 7 Radio, and it's Tomas Maldonado, the Chief Information Security Officer of International Flavors and Fragrances on episode number 62 of Task Force 7 Radio. So if you're listening to us live right now on Voice America, or maybe someone just sent you the link to this episode, you might be wondering how you can listen to all the previous Task Force 7 Radio episodes on playback. You can find Task Force 7 Radio on a total of nine different playback mediums, including iTunes.com, Google Play, TuneIn.com, Stitcher.com, Player.fm, Overcast.fm, ListenNotes.com, the show's very own website at TaskForce7Radio.com, and of course, the number one internet talk radio producer in the world, EvoiceAmerica.com. So all in all, nine different options to get your TF7 radio fixed. We're everywhere, folks. You can't miss us. If you Google Task Force 7 Radio, you'll get all your options. Check us out, TF7 Radio Playback, at your convenience, 24-7-365, anytime, anywhere around the globe. And as always, please, please, please don't forget to subscribe. So, folks, I also, I just want to mention, I don't, don't forget to check out the TF7 extras we posted up on, on both the Marriott Breach and the Core Breach. Uh, last week. These are very shorter current news and analysis episodes uh, that are proving to be very popular, and, and I like doing them. They're a lot of fun. All right, They're very educational, so I'm going to keep that going from time to time and monitor the audience for suggestions and feedback. I wish I could give you more and more, but uh, you know, I'll do as many as time permits. But you can find them both in the TF7 radio library on episodes number 59 and episode number 61, respectively. Good stuff, good stuff. So we're going to have another very special guest on the show with us tonight. He's a personal friend of mine. He's a family friend. He's a former colleague as well with more than one organization that I work with. Mr. Paul Kavikia is going to be on the show with us tonight. And Paul and I go way back, way back. You know, he was actually my computer forensics instructor in the basic computer forensics training course I took while I was in the Secret Service way back in the early 2000s when I was down at the uh, Federal Law Enforcement Training Center in Glencoe, Georgia. It's just crazy to think how much time has passed, right? I mean, that's a, that's a long time ago, and we've been friends, good friends ever since. But yeah, we're talking about a real OG cybercrime fighter here. And get this, you're going to love this, because I know that my audience particularly loves, you know, cybercrime episodes the most. They like the cybercrime stories. They like the cybercrime and intelligence uh, conversations the best, because that's I, I see a lot of... Uh, um, the audience and listenership spike. Paul has over 15 years of public service in law enforcement as a former special agent with the United States Secret Service, a former agent with the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms, and a detective with the Bergen County, New Jersey Prosecutor's Office in the Narcotics Division, and an additional 13 years of experience in serving global corporate executive positions in the private sector. He is the Director of Security and Business Continuity, IDT. Uh, he was the Senior Risk Manager of Information Security at Washington Mutual. And he was also the Vice President of Global Security Investigations at J.P. Morgan Chase. Uh, we worked together there. And, and most recently, he was an Associate Director of Cybersecurity and Intelligence with the Royal Bank of Canada. So we're talking about a ton of experience here in both the, 
the public and the private sector as a senior executive and tier one professional working cybercrime investigations, conducting computer forensics, working incident response cases, standing up whole electronic crimes capabilities in the country's largest financial institution, right? Which we're going to get his thoughts on that. It's going to be some really cool stuff. You're going to like the conversation. And we're very, very, very lucky to have him on this show with us this evening. So it's going to be a fun conversation, folks. Ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Paul Kavikia. Paul, welcome to the show. Hey, George. Thank you for having me. It's a real honor to be here. And it's always great to be in your company. Uh, it's like two guys just getting together for a beer. It's a comfort zone uh, full of experience. Hey, it's good to have you on. I know we had some, some difficulty getting this, uh, getting this going, which was kind of funny. But I, uh, I really appreciate you taking the time. I mean, uh, you know, this is, uh, is going to be a good conversation. I, I want to talk to you about something specific that I get asked all the time just to kind of kick this off. Because you and I have very similar law enforcement backgrounds. And, you know, I started out as a police officer in Dover, New Jersey, and, and you were making the jump from the Bergen County detective to director of cybersecurity operations for some of the largest financial institutions on the planet. I mean, this is a really, really big pivot that is, is difficult to do, and it, it requires a tremendous amount of thought in career management. It's not easy. And I always tell people this kind of pivoting requires a, a, a great deal of planning, a great deal of planning, and, and I guess, you know, you, you have to learn when you make mistakes to you know, obviously compensate quickly and, and, and pivot quickly, but one of the questions I get the most from my former colleagues in law enforcement who are looking to make a move into the private sector is like, hey, how'd you do that? Like, how'd you do that, man? Like, you, you were a police officer riding around a police car, and now you're like, you know, managing director with a big bank, you know, how's that work? Like, you know, and I think that's a really good question. Um, and it's not a, it's not a path that I recommend often. <laughs> you know, I don't, I don't, that things don't work like they used to and all the things change over time. Like, you know that, but if, if I was to, you know, ask you that same question, you know, how did you do that? What do you have to say to the folks in law enforcement looking to make that jump to the private sector and work in the cybersecurity business? You know, George, that's an excellent question. And I get that question all the time myself. And I think like yourself, since we are very similar, we had a dream and a drive, right? Uh, with you in, in the police department at Dover, myself starting off in the prosecutor's office, we kept our finger on the pulse of the way law enforcement was evolving and the trends that were coming down the track. We came into law enforcement in a very unique time in our history in the, in, in the late 80s, early 90s. And if we look back at the history of cybercrime, cybercrime was just starting to get its feet wet at that time as well. So if you were paying attention and you were looking uh, towards your future, what are my next steps in life? You start to see that we grow with the growth and the advent of cybercrime from the 80s in Nigerian scam letters to the 90s in the, in the web browser advancement. These are things that pique your interest and you want to make that next jump. For us, our next jump happened to be with the federal government, yourself with the Secret Service, myself with the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms. And one of the things the U.S. government teaches us all the time is training is never ending, right? There's always some type of training you can do. There's always some type of interest to pursue to better yourself within the, within the career that you've chosen, within the agency, and for career growth. For us, we started with that cyber peak, that cyber interest, because we started to investigate those crimes more perhaps on the level, on the federal level, than we were seeing on the local level for the local departments. It didn't really catch the local departments uh, as quickly as it did with the federal government. And 
throughout that time with the federal government, we had opportunities to pursue uh, cybercrime uh, and training. As you know, uh, like yourself, I started off in the basic and, and uh, computer forensic recovery. That was the thing the Treasury Department put out. Said, hey guys, we have a cyber issue here. We're starting to seize computers. We need to start examining them. And when you look at the wave of the future, cyber was the wave of the future. It culminated and coincided with the 1996 uh, testimony on the Hill with the former CIA director John Deutsch testifying to Congress that foreign based organization and crime rings were actively trying to hack the US government and corporate networks. And then the GAO announced that its files had been hacked by hackers at least 650,000 times, and at least 60% of them were successful. That sparked a huge outrage in, in the government, and they really started to beef us up to start looking into this cyber and cybercrime um, atmosphere. It started with us for the hard drive forensics, where we needed to really understand the basis and the basics of the computer, DOS language, and then the programs that were out there to seize, recover, and review this uh, evidence. Uh, if you remember our basic class, we had multiple tools, NCASE, iLook, um, yep. so many other things yeah. that were kind of like a hodgepodge that we needed to master because even the government wasn't sure how or what we were going to use as one unified tool. So for us, we had to have an advanced uh, amount of knowledge and capabilities to master all of these tools because depending on the agency you work with everyone used a different tool as we started to uh, move forward into the late 90s and the advent of the uh, web space uh, and then you get vulnerabilities and malware coming off of uh, uh, web-based uh, issues then we started to kind of narrow in in our advanced sections and whatnot the Treasury Department have to say at that time really started to hone its program together and obviously, um, you went through the program as well. And then there was an advanced class at the time, the Custom Cyber Center. So as we start to get this training and as we start to see more and more of these crimes in our agencies and investigate more and more of these crimes, we started going to companies just by investigation saying, hey, guys, we're stumbling upon these crimes here that are affecting you. Are you aware of it? It was at that point that the companies and corporations in America said, hey, we need to address this. So as you know, there was a flip, whereas the government was a spearhead in this cybercrime issue, then the companies that took interest, now they are the spearhead. And it started to give us, again, opportunities to say, hey, our future, if we want to take it, is with the corporations who are just starting to build their cybercrime networks and investigations and could use the skill set that we've developed under the United States government. The hard part is making the leap of faith. I don't know about you, but I was a lifer with law enforcement. <laughs> my father was in it. I was yep. completely satisfied to work my 25 years or so, retire, and then roll into the and roll into the corporate sector. But as you saw with the guys that were coming on a training behind us, they started to jump ship really early and go yep. through these corporations and really take control of those programs and build them on the corporate side from the ground up. So the opportunity was there. The continued education was there. It was just up to us to leave the safety net of what we love to do something different. And I think it was interesting, too, because I think, you know, and you can tell me if you have the same sort of view of things, but I remember that there was some resentment in some of the, you know, folks that did 25 years 
And, you know, and here we got, you know, these young folks or, or younger folks, I should say, not exactly young, but younger and, and, you know, doing maybe five years, six years, seven tops and going out and getting, you know, corporate jobs. But look, a lot, a lot of people, a lot of people uh, that did that, you know, worked their way up in corporate too. You know, I mean, uh, you know, I, when I went to corporate, I was the, a vice president. I started out with two people. <laughs> it wasn't like, you know, it wasn't like you were a partner or a managing director out of the gate. Some people do. Some people do get those positions out of the gate. Um, and then some go into corporate and work their way up. I mean, you know, I, I re- it's funny because recently I, I you know, I saw, uh, I, I think there's some resentment too in the technology space of a lot of the uh, law enforcement government types coming into technology. And I could see it sometimes when I talk to some folks and then you can sense the, you know, the resentment or the, oh, you're, you're, you're a law enforcement guy. And so they kind of, you know, dismiss you in some way, I think, which is really a mistake. I was just watching an interview with Kevin Mandy the other day where he described, and it was on, it was on video, it was on, I was watching it on YouTube, and he, where he described the, the, the advent of cybersecurity as the combination of law enforcement and computer science. Anything, you know, that's a really interesting way to think about it because most people think when you say cybersecurity, they think of the operations piece of information security, you know, intelligence, incident response, investigations as being the core of that. And of course, that's a lot of what law enforcement does, right? This makes a lot of sense. Those skills translate very well into this space. You know, I want to ask you, you know, how did cybercrime grow and coincide with your career? Like, how, how did you pursue the training? in cybercrime and forensics since you solicited did someone come to you like how did you start to make that pivot or do you you know were you just so competent proficient in forensics out of the gate it seemed to me like this is all second nature to you i mean obviously you were well george an expert, this, is, right? this is this is a, a question that has some guffaws and some laughs if i could take you back in time real quickly uh as a detective in 1991 uh with the burden county prosecutor's office narcotics task force you have my young uh detective uh, full of life, young and gun, you know, ready to lock lock up the world. But when I started to come across in narcotics was these tone dialers. And I don't know if you remember tone dialers, yeah. uh, but they would, you know, activate bad guys would use, use these tone dialers on pay phones. They would access the telephone network uh, and they would make calls free of charge, long distance scams, that kind of thing. Well, that caught my attention. And I tried very hard not only to charge the, the bad guys that I was working with, in either undercover capacity or straight capacity with drug crimes, but also with these electronic crimes. And I had a lot of assistant prosecutors laugh at me because they said, this is just a box. We don't understand that it. it's not heavyweight, but I knew it was there. And then when you roll into the, the federal government uh, as well, and you come in with the same vigor, uh, you, 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 you deal with an older uh, crowd that technology hasn't touched. So you become the new wave of law enforcement, a new face of law enforcement, or the kid that likes to play with toys as well as you know, being an investigator. So with ATF, I, had, I went from a small car uh, just doing regular work to a larger expedition because at one point I had all my forensic gear in the back as well as my tactical gear in the back. So many times you'd hit a door, do your tactical gear, and run back out and change your clothes and bring in your <laughs> forensic gear yeah. because you were the, you were the computer yeah. guy. Yeah, you know? <laughs> right. I remember so those days to, very well. Yeah, yeah. You'd have to run in with your other gear <laughs> and start taking hard drive samples all while being picked apart by your peers who, you know, support you through their humor and, and, and other uh, devices, but really didn't understand what you were doing. As the agency started to 
gear up. Uh, they started to identify people in the field offices with a talent or a knack or a desire for this. And uh, I was very lucky to have a uh, rack uh, in the Trenton office for ATF that really uh, took a, uh, an understanding and not only my investigative capabilities, but my, my look at technology. And he uh, presented me uh, to the division to represent Philadelphia Division of ATF to go down and start this cybercrime issue. And that's how I really got my, my start. I had somebody behind me that said, look, we, we recognize your talent and I wanna make sure that you're, you are uh, addressed uh, for the rest of your career. So if it wasn't for this man, and I'll name him Charlie Humphreys, um, I would probably not be where I am right now. So I'm very grateful. Every now and again, you run across a, a, a great manager, much like yourself, George recognizes the talent and the drive and says, look, we can harness this. We can do something with this. And this guy's going to go far. And, and that was my pivot point. So this is interesting. You know, I mean, throughout your early corporate career, how do you think your law enforcement training and, and the training of many law enforcement officers who have made this transition into cybersecurity? We have many colleagues who have done this. Um, how do you think it bolsters the overall security posture of the companies that we work for, you know, I mean, how do you think the, the Fortune 500 companies really take advantage of the skill sets that law enforcement officers have? I, I, to answer that question, George, it all comes down to investigative prowess. In my, in my outlook, you have to be a very good investigator and follow your case, whether it's intelligence, whether it's risk, whether it's regular uh, cyber fraud that you're working with with the company, you have to have a very good, solid foundation in investigation and interrogation. Because as you know, investigations lead you on a path. This path doesn't go A, B, C, D. It'll go A, Z, F, back and forth, back and forth. And no matter what area we're in, in our corporation, and I've seen it uh, so far in many areas. Let's take uh, uh, intelligence for an example. With the Royal Bank of Canada, as I stood up their enterprise intelligence system, strategic and operational, and we start to receive intelligence from outside uh, the company who's looking at us, dark web intelligence, credential recoveries. We take that intelligence and bring it back to the affected line of business and ask them questions. Did you know about this? Um, what can you do with this intelligence? What support and uplift can I give you? Do you need the proper amount of tools, that sort of thing? And once you start to work with the line of business and break down that silo and open that bridge of communication, you also start to see on the other side that there are needs, whether it be uh, your, your subject matter expert in investigations because you understand the tactics and techniques that bad guys use. And let's face it, tactics and techniques are, are cyclic, just like fraud. It's the same might be a twist here or there, but the basic bad guy movement is the same. And as a law enforcement professional, you recognize that and you also have the ability to say, I think we're gonna go here, I think we're gonna go here. So you can make that prediction going forward. Risk uh, is the same way. If you're looking at something on the risk frame and all of a sudden it was trending green and now this month it's trending yellow, why? Why is it trending yellow? What, what made this color change? Why are we kicking it up the risk chain where we seem to be in a questionable state rather than a, a good to go state? And you start to use that capability uh, in everyday life, not only at home, but in the corporate sector. It's just that investigative spirit that you have 
when you get in there. No question is satisfactory, and you always want to see something through the end, but, but it's not an A to B. It's all-encompassing. It's helping support to your lines of business and make sure they're on track. It's, it's better processes, streamlining uh, events, what makes uh, sense here, why are we taking so many steps, what can we streamline and, and move forward, and constant tweaking on the outside and keeping your education level that I talked about um, up and running through you know, webinars, YouTube videos, even if it's just you know, articles that you, that you read. It's just that basic law enforcement nature, that A type A personality that just harnesses and makes us, in a way, a utility player. We never say no to anything. We will always get the job done. And it'll always be 110% for that time and looking forward. So, Paul, we're going to, to take a small uh, commercial break, but we'll be right back because I want to pick your brain on some cyber intelligence issues and, and how they relate to investigations when we get back. So. Hey, if you're a social media junkie, don't forget to follow TF7 Radio on your favorite social media platform. Follow us on LinkedIn by searching at Task Force 7 Radio and on Facebook, Twitter, and even Instagram by searching at TF7 Radio. For any inquiries regarding sponsoring the show or suggestions for topics or guests, as well as other business communications, please email me directly at george.redis at taskforce7radio.com. That's george.redis at taskforce7. That's with the number seven radio.com. I want to remind our audience that we're building the world's premier cybersecurity professional network, Task Force 7. I'm really excited about this, folks. Tune in over the next several months for more information on this much-needed and much-awaited-for network. We're going to solve some problems together, I promise you. Task Force 7, get in the fight. We're going to pause for some quick messages from our sponsors, and then we'll be right back with one of the most prolific cybercrime fighters in the industry, Mr. Paul Kavikia. Whatever you do, don't go away. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Account takeover is the fastest growing form of cyber attack. Criminals exploit compromised accounts for financial gain, often causing irreparable and long-term damage to finances and reputation. Many companies think they're protected. They believe using a password manager, multi-factor authentication, behavior-based technology, password rotations, or solutions that scan the deep and dark web is enough. Yet the account takeover problem only continues to get worse. SpyCloud combines human intelligence and automated technology to prevent account takeover for your customers and employees. We recover stolen credentials early in the account takeover lifecycle before the credentials are sold on dark forums. Check your exposure for free at spycloud.com. Improve the efficiency and effectiveness of your security operations with DF Lab Security Orchestration, Automation, and Response Technology. Automate threat containment, orchestrate incident response, and measure operational performance with DF Lab's Inkman SOAR platform. Leverage your current security resources to minimize incident resolution time, maximize analyst efficiency, increase the number of incidents handled, and reduce overall risk. Inkman SOAR acts as a force multiplier, enabling your security team to do more with less. 
Streamline the full incident response lifecycle automation process today. Keep your cyber incidents under control with DF Labs. Visit dflabs.com forward slash TF7 to request a look at Inkman Soar live in action. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. You are listening to Task Force 7 Radio with George Redis. If you'd like to find out more about our program, please visit the website at taskforce7radio.com. Again, that's taskforce7 with the number 7, radio.com. Now, back to this week's show. Here again is your host, George Redis. Welcome back to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. I'm here with our special guest, one of the most prolific cybercrime professionals in the industry, Mr. Paul Kavikia. So, Paul, you know, I, I mentioned to the, to the audience that, you know, worked at J.P. Morgan Chase and, and the fact that you created the electronic crimes uh, team over there, the whole capability um, in that uh, security uh, department. And so I want to just ask you and, and get your thoughts on, you know, what drove the need for that? particular group over in the security team uh, that you managed there? What do you think was the particular need and what was the outcome? We were very fortunate Harvard and Global Security, George, as you know, we took a pause and took a a self-examination about fraud and said to ourselves, hey, we need to rethink how fraud is addressed and how it's investigated. And through your leadership and other managers above me's leadership, uh, you guys came up with an idea of, of, you know, we're seeing electronic issues here. Uh, we're seeing a cyber crime issue. So let's rework our fraud. Let's spread it into regional or physical fraud, you know, your regular bank fraud and diversions and cards and checks. And it's electronic means because everything that happens today will touch an electronic means. Not only was that important to our team there and, and, and the way we looked at uh, investigations on the cyber front, but also the key importance here was connections. We were making connections through a common source, whether it be an IP address, a uh, someone called in via telephone on an account, online logs, and we were making those connections to see where a certain item or common point touched, how many accounts it affected, and how we're going to go about investigating uh, these things. I think those things were the key to our investigations and the need for electronic crimes, J.P. Morgan Chase, as well as the second prong of this investigation, because again, and this is where our law enforcement experience really speaks to what we did. We didn't just look at the who, where, why, and what and make those connections and say, okay, we're done. The other prong in this, the most important prong, if you, if you ask me, was a control issue. We actually went back to the line of business and looked at the control that, that at the time functioned in a certain way and where uh, the bad guys were able to get around it and what uh, remediation 
or, or, or what steps we needed to put in to change that control to ultimately affect the way the line of business did their business. And that was the most important or the key thing for the organization, for the corporation as a whole, and for our value as a global uh, security investigations, electronic crimes investigation uh, task force. No, I think it's, um, I think it's really interesting because, you know, if I recall, you know, correctly, we, we had leadership from people like Dan Penapinto, who was a, a, a career corporate guy who knew the line of business, you know, and knew how to talk the language of the business and was very well uh, adept and trained at forensics and, and, and uh, had a huge leadership role in standing up our forensics teams and, you know, making that transition along with you who took this law enforcement experience, you know, it was a great combination. It was a great combination and it was a great force to be reckoned with, I think. And to your point, you know, there is a different skill set needed to investigate these types of crimes and to sort of create that team to, to create that capability and, and, you know, focus on, on that specific talent, right, was, I think, very beneficial because we were very easily able to carve those cases out of our overall workload. And they took more time. I think they, they were a different type of case. They had, you know, they required a different skill set. And so uh, very interesting, very interesting times well, we, and uh, very successful. We made, a, we made a lot of impact uh, right off the bat, and it continued with the lines of business, right, and how they, how they functioned, uh, what their risk appetites were, how things were changed. I think we, we put a little more onus on their own risk teams where now if the risk team had already made it a suggestion to the line of business to alter or change certain things and the line of business said, well, we're going to make this as a business decision. We don't feel it's important now. We were able to bring that back up to the forefront and then put the line of business uh, in a way on the timeline. Hey, we really need to see this. We, we saw, oversaw and affected that change. So we may have fostered those changes maybe earlier than the line of business was willing to to move based on um, their perceived need, oh, but it was an amazing thing to see uh, the change in the business and the way the business operated, plus the savings we were able to generate for the line of business itself. And that translated into our own cost savings based on our investigations. I mean, how many times did I present you numbers uh, on, on uh, cost savings and, and, you know, the New York team led uh, the, uh, the cost savings for the month or the year, uh, our impacts to the line of business, where we were, what we did, what we changed, and, and all the uh, uh, phone calls and, and uh, acknowledgments that we got from the line of business saying, hey, you guys are very, very effective of what you do. Keep it up. And, and the lines of business were actually throwing us support, if you remember. Uh, uh, they bought onto the train. They supported us. They actually gave us some resources if necessary. Uh, they were very open with us, and we were able to break down those silos, which still affect business today. Siloing is a killer. Uh, we were able to effectively reduce those silos, and I think we really streamlined uh, the company uh, in a certain way. Yeah, I mean, I, you, know, I, I, you know, when I think about this, and a lot of people that I really haven't, that are in law enforcement, that haven't made the transition into the private sector might be shocked of the fact that a lot of corporations don't care who did it. They don't care who committed the crime against them. They care about mitigating the risk that this imposes, right? They're not, and a lot of, I think where a lot of guys fail from coming making that transition is they're so focused on, you know, making the collar and, and make, you know, getting the arrest or getting law enforcement to arrest them. They don't have arrest powers anymore, but, you know, investigating it to the point where law enforcement has a case and, and can do something about it. 
that's part of the job. Yes, that's part of the job, and definitely uh, it, that's done often. But the the executives in the lines of business, they, they don't no one cares about that, right? It's all risk based. So, what would you say the overall mission of the team was, and how did the investigation reporting format differ because it's so risk based, right? Well, well, it's all about bread protection, if you think about it, right? Yes, the arrests are, are sexy. We'd love to have, you know, your uh, contacts that you've worked with in the FBI or Secret Service help us with a case to get a collar overseas. That's a feel-good story uh, for the sea level and, and, and in the newspapers and for our customers. But at the end of the day, it's all about the brand. One of the things I, I was able to glean from um, Jamie Dimon at the time, uh, CEO, when I was on the executive protection team, I was fortunate enough to hear him speak at many events, TARP hearings, uh, uh, this sort of thing. But one of the things that stood out to him that he said to me uh, in, in talking on the town hall for our people was this line. And he used to tout Fortress, uh, Fortress J.P. Morgan, Fortress Chase. If the company is not around, it's no good to anybody in this audience. Everybody is a, is a, plays a part in this wheel for the fortress for the company. So then when we looked at things and we went back to electronic crimes and investigations, we always said to ourselves, how do we protect the fortress, fortress chase? The investigation reporting was always, or always started out with the who, what, when, where, and why, because I gave the summary of what happened. So you can understand the crime itself. But the bulk and the remainder of the reporting that we did was all about controls where the control sat, what it was at the time uh, that this occurred, what was the technique that bypassed that control or found the vulnerability with the control, and then the mitigation steps. What mitigation or band-aid did we put on right away to stop it? What are the next steps in the timeline to fix this control overall? And where are we uh, in the future? How long is that going to take? What type of, of, of funds were lost and affected? What are we saving? So while the, the, the beginning of that report was traditional law enforcement, the bulk of it was risk-based, and it told a very good story that our executives understood. Right, right. I mean, you know, it's true. It's true. They, look, they, in their minds, and, you know, they're 100% right here, if we make a collar on somebody, somebody gets arrested for it. They think someone else is just going to fill their shoes and do the same thing to the bank all over again. So they're more interested in root cause analysis, the more instant in, you know, implementing controls to mitigate and manage that risk and, and, you know, and rightfully so. And law enforcement officers, you know, making that transition need to realize this and need to realize how to operate and that your whole investigation uh, reporting format differs from what you are usually used to. So were you, you think you're successfully able to change the way the business unit conducted their business based on your investigation outcomes and the review of the controls that were, uh, uh, you know, a consequence of those outcomes? Absolutely, George, 100%. Uh, when you write an investigative report, whether it's for court or it's for uh, a corporation, you're loading it with the facts, the detailed facts of what happened and how to make it better. But in the corporate side, I found that engaging with the line of business and with their risk people line of business and having them walk you through their process and having the open type of document that we had. If you remember, uh, one of my, my taglines was uh, when we started the uh, risk assessment for the line of business was, this is not a headhunt. 
We are not here to to uh, besmirch anybody's reputation. We are here for a common cause. That common cause is we have a issue here that we're investigating, and I need your help. And your help will be able to tell me how this control works. And I want your input that you may have already submitted or you're already thinking about how to make this better. It was a unified joint document investigation. Everyone that sat around the table in the conference room for the line of business that talked about this control or mitigation control or another control that might be affected had a say in the report, actually wrote pieces of that report, and it was circulated so everyone agreed before we presented it to yourself and then up the chain. So that, that unified input was key. Uh, to no, I think it's yeah, I think it's really interesting because I think you know I can re I can remember back when I uh, joined the target breach when um, we all were in the investigations team the global uh, security investigations department over there at Chase and um, the CEO of the company was on a late call you know I believe it was Christmas week um, we were on the call every every night uh, very late um, and you know the there was a decision to make in terms of you know what to do with the ATMs and if you know we had to make a decision whether you know the bad guys had the pins or not um, to the, the credit cards that were compromised in the target breach and he left that decision with us on the call surprisingly and you know surprised us with what do you guys think <laughs> and that was all a risk discussion and the intelligence piece was really so important to that decision because we were the ones that knew uh, how the cyber organized crime groups operated. We were the ones who ran the intelligence groups, so we had the most intelligence, obviously, um, and uh, we were more familiar with the situation. So uh, we gave our opinion, and and he went with us. Thank God we were right. <laughs> but you know, you know, that's a, it's one of those things you you know you you pray you pray to God that you're right. But um, you know, it's uh, it, it's interesting that the executives start to learn that hey, look, about certain issues and certain risks to the bank. These guys provide a tremendous amount of value, and uh, so in your like, so let me get your opinion. How did you leverage operational intelligence? You know, as it coincided with your investigations and the group that you ran. So, you know, part of our job, George, and you just touched on it, just to clarify for the audience, is education. We are constantly educating other people, whether it's through our investigative uh, knowledge or through our intelligence understanding, uh, that sort of thing. So when you deliver these type of reports, you're delivering also an education uh, to other people. So, so very important uh, that, that we all understand this. Intelligence is a funny animal. Uh, like anything else, you need to understand who your threat actors are. Uh, understand your enemy, so to speak. Is it government sponsors, organized crime, hacktivists, insider threats? Is it an op opportunistic event? Or is it an internal error, uh, an oops? inside, which we used to call clown collars, if you remember, at Chase, that led to something uh, different. And, and intelligence is pivotal uh, for corporations now more than, more than before. If you remember back to our Chase days, uh, we leveraged intelligence, and I leveraged intelligence, with the intelligence team uh, to a point where we were recovering uh, credit cards or bin numbers, and we were actively going back to the lines of business and saying, hey, guys, uh, we're, we're receiving this information here. Can you look at it? Uh, what we were trying to do was foster an atmosphere of proactivity. Do we have a problem with this bin that we don't know about? And if so, let's stop it now before the bleed happens, right? Or uh, we're recovering 
certain things uh, on the credit card side, uh, can we tie it back to a methodology? And at the time we were going through it, George, and, and our group ran this, it was mules. Uh, somebody would open an account at the bank. As soon as the account was open, money would be wired into it. That money would then go out. There were proceeds of another crime being bounced uh, from from one bank to another. Uh, and the methodology that was used to open it, whether it be counterfeit documents, uh, student accounts, uh, people coming in uh, on visas for overseas. We were able to seize onto that, work with law enforcement, assist them with these mule accounts, control the input but not the output, and then release the output at, at the time when law enforcement was ready to make the arrest. So we were very hands-on and very involved in that to the point where, if I remember properly, the intelligence team was saying they were picking up chatter on the underground saying, stay away from Chase. They're on to us, stay away from Chase. And really, with fraud, that's what you want. You want to make things so difficult or so many hoops you have to jump through, it's, it's not worth a bad guy's time. You want them to go someplace else. Moving forward in my career at the Royal Bank and some of the consultancies that I do with intelligence, intelligence is information. Information that we get based on seating and company needs, line of business needs. And, and once we start to receive that information in, we go back to the line of business and ask them to verify. We want them to verify because we want to know that the intelligence itself is being obtained based on the seeds is good, it's bad, do we need to tweak it? Did we find something that they're not even aware of yet? And do we need to focus? Yeah. Right? So this is pretty because I, I was just going to ask you a question, and I think you really touched upon it right now, is how does, how does your ability to stand up an intelligence-led model help you in your career, right? Obviously, information is power, and you have the information. People want to hear from you. But not only that, it's about information about things that not everybody understands, right? Not everybody understands because it's a unique type of experience, and you're de dealing with a, a very sort of specific threat actor taxonomy in the cybersecurity space that's different from other risks that the bank faces. So how do, how do you think that propelled you in, into the next phase of your career? Obviously, you, you know, we're just saying, hey, look, I have the information, and I'm able to – you know, well, visibility, right, with the, with, the, with the business, right? Right. So, you know, it, you have to, to explain you, your services. Like, what does intelligence do? When you go to a line of business, each line of business is different in their needs and their wants, okay? So you need to actually come with a list of services. This is what our intelligence tool can do, uh, open source, Humnet, Osnet, that kind of thing. This is our capability. Does any of these services, in a way, almost like a menu, what, what did you want to pick and choose out of here? Because that will be what's important to the line of business. And then we tailor that to the reporting aspect. When we get this information in, we're going to pass it over to you. Do you have a mechanism to absorb this consumer? And if you can absorb it, how do you act on it? How are you actioning this intelligence and what's the result? And we need feedback to come through. Feedback is always so important to intelligence. We can go back to our vendor or vendors or sources and say, yes, good, no, bad. This is where we think we need to tweak. Each line of business, as I said before, operates differently. Their needs are different. Their, their interests are different. So you have to be able to address each line of business individually, tailor the results to them on the reporting uh, feature, have the ability to go to them with some type of uh, a new 
uh, trend that you're seeing that they might not know, report it in such a manner uh, that it's either weekly news, monthly news, uh, flash reporting, because it's urgent, or, or quarterly uh, for, each, for each area. And then plug all those business units into your intelligence platform. For the SOC, for example, are we seeding it with an API so they're getting almost real-time information? And if so, you know, what are we doing with that SOC? And what other areas is it impacting? So, Paul, Paul you, we're, running, we're running long, but I want to get into one more question before the next yeah. break. What do you, how important do you think it is to have an enterprise-wide intelligence team in this corporate environment? Meaning, it's not just criminal intelligence, right? It's also you know, regulatory intelligence and geopolitical intelligence and executive protection intelligence. And how, how important it is to have this sort of all-encompassing intelligence unit in one place sharing this information and not in disparate places across the organization. It's critical to the environment to have a huge umbrella overview of enterprise intelligence for those very same reasons, George. You're working with regulators, you're working with lines of business, you want information flow in and out. You're always protecting the face of the company, the brand, the outlook, and the customer experience. And you can do that in almost a real-time environment when you have an intelligence platform. And, and going back and forth with your lines of business, your corporate sector, and even into your fusion platforms, right? We want to also foster better risk decisions going forward. We want to be a cog in the wheel of the business as it decides the future of, its, of the ship and its growth and where it's going. You want to be that cog in there to supply that information to help them make their decisions. Uh, it's, it's no coincidence here that uh, risk, risk adjusted decision making process is basically key to the, uh, the intelligence led program. Now look, Paul, we've got to take another short break, but don't go away. We'll be right back to uh, finish up some questions on intelligence and get some other investigation issues as well. Don't go away, folks. We'll be right back with more from one of the most prolific cybercrime fighters in the world, Mr. Paul Kivikier. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Account takeover is the fastest growing form of cyber attack. Criminals exploit compromised accounts for financial gain, often causing irreparable and long-term damage to finances and reputation. Many companies think they're protected. They believe using a password manager, multi-factor authentication, behavior-based technology, password rotations, or solutions that scan the deep and dark web is enough. Yet the account takeover problem only continues to get worse. SpyCloud combines human intelligence and automated technology to prevent account takeover for your customers and employees. We recover stolen credentials early in the account takeover lifecycle before the credentials are sold on dark forums. Check your exposure for free at spycloud.com. Improve the efficiency and effectiveness of your security operations with DF Lab Security Orchestration, Automation, and Response Technology. Automate threat containment, orchestrate incident response, and measure operational performance with DF Lab's Inkman SOAR platform. Leverage your current security resources to minimize incident resolution time, maximize analyst efficiency, increase the number of incidents handled, and reduce overall risk. 
Pink Man Soar acts as a force multiplier, enabling your security team to do more with less. Streamline the full incident response lifecycle automation process today. Keep your cyber incidents under control with DF Labs. Visit dflabs.com forward slash TF7 to request a look at Ink Man Soar live in action. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio with George Redis. If you'd like to find out more about our program, please visit the website at taskforce7radio.com. Again, that's taskforce7 with the number 7, radio.com. Now, back to this week's show. Here again is your host, George Redis. Welcome back to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. I'm here with our special guest, one of the most prolific cybercrime professionals in the world, Mr. Paul Kavikia. So, Paul, we were talking about intelligence, and I want to just get into a little bit of support and uplift right now, and specifically uplift. You know, what type of uplift can you provide to a business unit based on the consumption and actioning of intelligence that's, you know, first of all, timely, right? It has to be this cyclical engagement model, right, that we talk about all the time. Right. And can you explain a little bit how that works and what the analysis is and what the conversation looks like? Sure. Uh, very quickly, I, I, I was uh, able to and I want to focus on fraud with this one. Um, for an example, we were able to bring and recover uh, some credentials, uh, bins, uh, credit card exposures, that sort of thing, and bring it to the fraud team for consumption. Uh, our pushback at the time was hey, this isn't really useful to us, that sort of thing. If we start to examine why, why is this not good for them? What, is it, what are the factors? We, we were able to find uh, that it was a manpower issue and that it was also a tool issue uh, and it's also a methodology issue. And what I mean by methodology was the units within fraud were somewhat uh, siloed and they were not able to cross-communicate and, and work uh, to make uh, connections, as we, we talked about in Chase, uh, for common points of interest. Uh, I was able to sit down with the data science team and say, hey, guys, I want to put this model into place where we can start to look at our data pools that are currently out there, whitelists, uh, that sort of thing, uh, look at our, our, our fraud tables, and start to narrow into, in a way, a homegrown AI system here that will understand that when the customer logs in, that those logins, whether it be IP, whether it be phone, mobile app, that sort of thing, goes through processes. But that process can be looked at uh, and, and looked across uh, the bank and information that says, hey, we've seen this item before, we've seen this number before. Not only have we seen it, it's touched this many accounts. Uh, and when it's touched X accounts, out of those accounts, Two or three have fraud, four or five don't, uh, but some demographic changes were made here. Uh, so we started to behavioral model uh, our customer customer base. So we knew what the normal behavior of the customer was. So then when something was out uh, of nor- uh, normalcy, it started to raise uh, some, frag, some flags. 
Along with that, we're able to also build a risk model, low, medium, high, uh, about these logins and these customer behaviors. And within those uh, silos of low, medium, high, there was a point system that if, if an if then happened, uh, it would assign points to it and then kick it into the next tier. And what we were able to do was to give the fraud team a pre-packaged uh, answer to this customer or this login that helped them already predetermine how they were going to action this information and move on to investigations. And it's the same thing. Sorry. Yeah, so, so I was thinking, you know, when you said that, all right, what's the outcome, right? So you have this sort of process of distillation abstraction that happens with, with the line of business and some of the information and the consumption of the intelligence that you're, you're giving them. So the actioning, let's talk about the actioning a little bit, right? So what initiatives do you think have been born out of the, the, the gaps identified through the root cause analysis and the support and uplift to the business? You could run the, the gamut with this, George, everything from a better case management tool uh, to a streamlining of processes uh, with verification to the online portal, uh, support during incidences of, of potential breaches uh, and, and other uh, areas where you're seeing the uh, tactics and techniques where they're going back and adjusting uh, their verification models or their controls to uh, understand uh, this particular issue and block it. Uh, you have blocking, blocking, reissuing reissuing issues. Uh, I mean, it, it, it's, it's endless what you do. Uh, if you look at also uh, DLP issues, data loss prevention, where your corporate email addresses for your employees is leaked out on the internet. Now we go back and we look at the code of conduct, right? What does the code of conduct say about how someone is to use a corporate asset, such as uh, email address? Does it need to be strengthened? Uh, oh, by the way, we really need to rework this whole section that, that deals with cybersecurity. So everything that is actioned on the intelligence basis also takes us to another breadcrumb or another level where we're looking at a different processes, policy, procedure, methodology to strengthen, streamline, uh, assist in, in getting a new tool or addressing a need that they weren't even sure that they had. And that's, I know that's a very general overview, but. No, I mean, so it makes sense to me. I mean, there's, you know, these, some of these intelligence programs now have been around for a while. When we started them back in the early 2000s, coming out of law enforcement, I don't think they existed in, in, in the, the private sector to the extent, of course, that they do today. Um, but, you know, now it's like almost commonplace that you have to have some type of intelligence operation. How do you communicate cyber intelligence to the C-suite? Communicating cyber intelligence to the C-suite is uh, not always uh, an easy thing, but I, uh, I believe we break it down uh, very quickly uh, to, to the need to know. Uh, if you're dealing with a certain issue, you have to give them a little background of, of why this issue is important and how it works and how it affected uh, the bank or how it affected your corporation. What they need to know is what is it, how does it affect us, and what are we doing about it? It's a three simple question process. We don't want it to waste their time with a lot of fluff. We don't want to create a lot of noise, but they want to, they need to know or have to be told uh, these steps. Look, when you come to them with these, this type of reporting, it's not good news. There's never a good news story here with intelligence because bad guys are always attacking the bank. So a lot of times when they see you coming or you get an email, it, it's like, oh, him again. 
because it's not good news. Right. You, you can never give them a good news story. But I've also found that as executives in the C-suite get used to your department and what it does, they actually want to hear from you. Or I find them actually reaching out to me and saying, I heard this on the news. Uh, I read this in the paper. Are we affected by this? Is something we should be worried about? So you, in a way, while I was talking about educating them, when you educate the people that you work with, you find that they actually come to you because of the trust they have and loyalty in your experience, and they start to ask you questions ahead of time rather than being reactive. Right. I mean, I think the, you know you got to translate that whole translate that whole intelligence briefing into a risk discussion, and it's tricky. It's, it can be it can be tricky, right? It can be tr- it can be tricky um, to do that. I mean, yeah, these they they're going to want to know as much information as possible, and I think the fidelity and the information that you give them, they're going to want to know right out of the gate, like what is the probability of this being true, or you know, uh, things to that nature. Does it? Does, does, does it come to you, um, or does it happen to you in these instances where intelligence becomes involved with training programs and even uh, compliance regulations, like we mentioned before, uh, yes, often? Uh, we, we go back all the time, and we work with uh, training and education for uh, onboarding a new employee so they understand the basis of cybersecurity and give them the new trends out there. Uh, when you're working with uh, other factors like GDPR, uh, out in, in, in European space. Part of the training with that is training of the C-suite about how do you train your C-suite electronic crimes, what programs and that sort of thing. So you have to develop or work with communications on those programs, uh, feed them the latest and greatest, actually have in, in a way a consultancy over what they're explaining, how they explain it, and keep up with that yearly, uh, giving them new trends uh, as well. You want to look at the web page and do your 10 basics, you know, seasonal for fraud, cyber fraud. Uh, so, as I said before, we're always in a continuing education mode to our people. Uh, we're always building, as well as, and we offshoot here, working with your red team. When your red team build these exercises to do your internal testing, they rely on intelligence to give them the latest TTPs, the threat actors, knowing your threats, the people you work with, and helping them build those scenarios so they can, they can deliver on their products as well. Paul, I really appreciate you coming on the show. Thanks for spending the time with us, man. I'll be George, I really, I really appreciate it. I look forward to the next invite. Awesome. All right, bro. I'm sorry to see you soon. Thanks so much. All right, folks, we've run out of time once again. Before I go, I'll remind our listeners to visit the Cybersecurity Hub and read a recap of tonight's show and get other up-to-date cybersecurity breaking news at www.cshub.com. That's the Cybersecurity Hub at cshub.com. Thanks for tuning in. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. Stay frosty out there. Thank you for tuning in this week to Task Force 7 Radio. To learn more about Task Force 7 Radio, please visit our website at taskforce7radio.com. Be sure to join your host, George Reedus, again next Monday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel.